All right, well, friends, here we go. Week three on marriage. Week three on marriage. I want to invite you, go with me in your Bibles, Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter two. Here's what we did last week. Last week, we looked at Genesis 2 and how there are common things a husband and wife must do. We looked at three in particular. Anybody remember the three circles? Right? There's an inner ring of the garden that we cultivate together. That's our marriage. There's an outer ring of God's world around us, and we cultivate that part of the garden. We divided that into four quadrants, family, work, rest, church, ministry, worship. Well, today what we're going to do in Genesis 2 is we're going to see how male and female are different, how husbands and wives are different. In particular, we're going to see three roles, three roles that husbands are to fulfill and wives are to fulfill. In fact, it can be very unpopular to talk about marriage roles, especially from the Bible in our society today. There's a lot of confusion around marriage. There's a lot of confusion around being man and woman. There's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife. There's confusion about maleness and femaleness, right? There's a lot of confusion out there. We're told things like this. Gender is a construction. Our gender is something that we create. The very basis for looking at roles in marriage and are there distinct roles, we question that. We say we can create it, we can recreate it, we can tailor it to whatever we'd like. That seems to be the prevailing mood of our society. Anybody wanna, yeah, okay, yes, all right, there we go. Here's something I've been learning that's pretty cool in the last two weeks. I've been reading this really good book called Why Gender Matters by a man named Dr. Leonard Sachs. It's a very interesting book, and in this book, he makes, and this guy, he's not necessarily a Christian. I'm pretty sure he is not, in fact, but he reports some really cool experiments that are eye-opening. There was an experiment in the 1980s. Some of you may have heard of this. Some researchers took young boys, young girls, like two years old, three at the most, let them play, and they gave them the choice of one toy, one toy. You can have a dull gray pickup truck toy, or you can have a colorful doll. They wanted to see what the results were. Some of y'all are already grinning. (laughs) Here's what happened. The girls were split something like 55% to 45%. 55% for the doll, 45% for the truck. Guess what the boys' split was? Any guesses? It was like 90 to 10 or 80 to 20, somewhere in there. Boys are like, give me the truck, right? Well, in the 1980s, when this experiment was done, they wrote it off, gender construction. Right? These little boys have been hearing from their dads and their moms, don't pick up a doll. It's like, well, I'm pretty sure dads also tell girls, don't pick up the truck, play with the doll, right? But that didn't work. So we write this off as gender construction. It's just the way we create gender. In fact, it's more evidence of the fact that we can construct gender. Well, within the last 10 years, there was a follow-up experiment done to this original experiment. What was that experiment? The exact same one. Here's the only change. Instead of human boys and human girls, they now took boy monkeys and girl monkeys. Like the equivalent of a two-year-old boy monkey, the equivalent of a three-year-old girl monkey. What were the results? Any guesses? Almost exactly the same. Yeah, I heard somebody whisper it. Almost exactly the same. Something like 55, 60% uh, to 40% for the girls and the same 90 to 80% for the boys. 
Do monkeys construct their gender? No. No, they don't know how to. That theory just got blown out of the water. <laughs> there are biological differences that we know. Those biological differences and distinctions are not just anatomical, they play out in our behaviors. They play out in the way we conceive of ourselves. And friends, can we just say that biology was following a design, a pattern, a pattern that was given to us by a creator? If there is a creator, if there is a design, if we are hardwired to have differences between the sexes, then maybe, just maybe, it's not crazy to say there are distinct gender roles in marriage. In fact, in our text today, we're going to look at three of those. We're going to look at three of them under the rubric of what's called complementarianism. Complementarianism. Big, fancy seminary word. What does it mean? It means this. It means when you read the Bible, you see that husband and wife are like right hand and left hand. Very similar. Same amount of digits and joints. Go together, like looking at each other in the mirror, but have a very key difference, right? The thumbs are on the opposite sides. They're not exactly the same. Husbands and wives complement. They go together. And just like a human being tends to lead with a right hand or a left hand, so in marriage, God has designed and implanted some key differences, and we need to study those differences. We need to learn those differences. What are those differences? Here's the places where we're going this morning. The first place we're going to go is this. We're going to see that on the whole, men are initiators, women are responders. We're going to see that husbands are guardians and wives are nurturers. We are going to see, finally, one that can be a little bit of a hard pill to swallow. Let's just go ahead and own it. Men and husbands are called to be heads. Wives are called to be helpers. We're going to see those flow from the text of Scripture. We're going to look at them. We're going to get into them. And then as we look at them, moving kind of quickly through them, we're going to get to that fourth and final point where when we follow and live out these distinctions, these roles, we see how it really does make marriage better. It really is a better alternative to what's out there in all of the marriage books, blogs, and articles today. Let's hop in. Let's go to that first one. Husbands are initiators. Wives are responders. Go with me to Genesis chapter 2. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. 15 through 17. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. All right, right there, right there. We're going to be in this passage for two of these points. What did we just see? There's a very key detail, one that seems rather obvious, but is very significant. Is Eve on the scene yet? Has Eve been created yet? No. This is a very key detail. This matters. Why does this matter? This matters because as God gives the first words to humanity, it is incumbent upon the husband, it is incumbent upon the man to make sure he initiates and proactively gives God's words to his wife. 
We see the seeds of man being an initiator. We see that Adam is going to have to say, Eve, sweetheart, come along with me. Hey, we're supposed to do this. We're not supposed to do that. See that tree over there? Uh Uh-uh. No. No. Don't. No. Bad. (laughs) Just let's stay away. Let's be on this part of the garden. Adam has to initiate and take care. Adam is to be an initiator. This is the original seed that we see of that line of thinking, of this distinct role for men. And this is passed on even today. Men, husbands, we should be initiators. We reflect who God is as an initiator in creation. Hold on to that. We're going to unpack it a little bit more later. What does this mean for ladies? Does this mean you don't ever initiate? No, it does not mean that. But what it does mean is that a very important role in your marriage is this, that of responder, that of responder. Eve should be able to look to Adam, hear his words, see his actions, see his example, see how he's trying to take God's priorities, God's goals for creation, bringing that kingdom reign of harmony, peace, and order. She should go, wow, this is good. I want in. I want to be part of this. And she should respond by coming alongside him. Again, we're going to unpack this a little bit more later, but for right now, do you see husbands, initiators, wives, responders? That's theme number one. Theme number one. What's theme number two? Theme number two is this. Theme number two is that husbands are guardians, wives are nurturers. Husbands are guardians, wives are nurturers. We're going to get this from the exact same passage, same three verses, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Let's look at them through a different angle, and let's see this guardianship. Let's see this nurturing quality. Go back to verse 15. Go back to verse 15. Do you see those two verbs, work and keep? Work and keep. We started to explore them a little bit last week. We're going to dig the shovel down another scoop, get some more dirt out, and go deeper with these two verbs this week. They translate the Hebrew verbs shamar and avad. We said last week, when you look at the rest of the Old Testament, when you see these two verbs together, it's usually talking about the priest. In fact, more often than not, overwhelmingly, it's talking about the priest. Let me give you an example. Go with me to Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Do you see those bold words there? Guard, minister, guard, guard, minister. Those are the same Hebrew words. You look up other verses, you see these same words, you see these same verbs, same context, same situation. What does this mean? Why does this matter? Well, last week we saw that Eden is a temple. It is a place where God meets with man, where God dwells with man. Eden is a temple garden. Adam is a forerunner of the priests of Israel. Adam is a guardian. He is a guardian of the temple paradise known as Eden. He is a keeper of God's words. Adam is a guardian. He should be thinking of how to guard the garden, how to make sure that the right potential we saw last week in the garden gets cultivated, how it gets expanded, how it stays pure. This is who Adam is. This is a trait handed down to husbands built into God's design for marriage. We're guardians. We guard. We protect. We shield. Men. Do you remember that second ring from last week? Family, work, 
rest, church, ministry, worship, we are to guard those things. We are to think about those things. We are to guard the inner circle where we cultivate our hearts together. We are to guard God's mission, that outer circle of expanding his kingdom. We are guardians. We look out for the well-being of God's mission and design for marriage by anticipating threats, by steering clear of them, by steering others clear of them, and when there are obstacles, we remove them. If Adam is a guardian, what does that make Eve? Eve protects. Eve protects. We have mama bears, right? That's like, that's like a phrase in our society, right? Eve protects, but how does she protect? How does she protect? Eve protects in her companionship. She protects Adam from loneliness. As Adam and Eve are to be fruitful and multiply, as they are to bring people into this world, her body protects the unborn. As they are born, her body, as she nurses, protects the babies, gives them a chance to grow up. As she helps raise them, she too will pass on God's words by teaching her children, those trees over there, that tree in particular, stay away, don't eat, everything else. What is she doing? She's protecting her children from death. She's protecting her children's relationship with God. In all of these ways, and there's more we can unpack, we see women protecting, and what are they doing as they protect? Nurturing, nurturing, allowing life to flourish, cultivating life. As Eve protects, she is a nurturer. Husbands, guardians, wives, nurturers. We have initiators, we have responders, we have guardians, we have nurturers. What's our third theme? What is our third theme? Our third theme is this. Husbands are heads, Wives are helpers. Husbands are heads. Wives are helpers. Let's go to Genesis 18 through 23. Let's continue together in our text. Let me read. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What do we learn here? What did we learn here? We learned, we start to see husbands, yes, there is a headship. Wives, yes, there is a helping that marks who you are. These are how the roles are distinct and complementary. This is the third and final pair we're gonna look at this morning. But don't just take my word for it. Don't just rely on the way you were raised. Let's make sure we know this from the Bible. Here's my concern in going over this ground. How many of you have heard a sermon on this before? Anybody? Yeah, we're covering some old, well-trodden ground. 
But what I'm learning and what I'm finding is I want you to be able to walk somebody through the Bible with this. I want you to be able to take this passage, open it up, help somebody who has a struggling marriage and show them, hey, this is God's design. Do you see how they interrelate? Let's look at how they interrelate. Go with me to verse 18. God sees that Adam is alone. For the first time, he says something is not good. In verse 19, though, this gets interesting. This gets really interesting. When God says it's not good for man to be alone, what do you expect next? Rib, Eve, right? Like, that would be, like, logical. That would make sense. But what does God do? God says, uh-uh, I got something better. Animals. <laughs> We're going to parade animals by you two by two. What is going on here? Right? Like, all of us know the story of Adam naming the animals, but a lot of people don't realize the point of naming the animals is to get to Eve, to get to a helper. What's going on? What's God's logic? What's his game here? What's he up to? He's noticed something. He wants Adam to see it too. You see, as Adam is living out his stewardship, his kingship, he is to have dominion, he is to subdue. What he does is he names the animals as they go by, but as he does, he can't help but notice this ox. It's got a great purpose. It's going to come really handy when we haul stuff from a quarry, when we need to, to plow a field. He's going to come in great. Horses, great for getting around. Get out of the garden, go exploring. We're supposed to do that. Horse is going to be great. This thing licking my leg, I'm going to call it a dog. It's already looking like it wants to be my best friend. But each one of them has a partner. Adam is supposed to see, hey, wait a minute. Time out. Where's mine? Do I have one? And in response, what happens? In verses 21 and 22, we see Eve come on to the scene. And in verse 23, we see something really cool. Adam names her woman. Adam names her woman. How do we get headship out of this? How do we get headship out of this? When you name something, you have some degree of authority over it, right? How many of you have named a child or participated with the husband and wife, yeah, in naming a child, right? What does dad always tease us with? Like the, the, the mock threat from dad is, I brought you into this world, I can take you out, right? Like when you name it, you kind of have some authority there. That's true of the animals, but it's true in a different way with Eve. Adam names Eve. There's the beginning seeds of headship. Here's another way that we see headship. Eve comes from Adam. Adam is created first. Is that significant? Yes, it is significant. If we look at the screen, we'll see what the Apostle Paul thought of Adam being formed first. When he laid down that there is authority in the church, and that men should be the officers who rule in the church. What is his rationale? He says a woman does not rule over a man and teach a man. Why? Adam was formed first, then Eve. Very politically incorrect, but it's there in the text. We just kind of got to lean in and own it, right? There it is. There it is. As we look at this, as we look at the way what happened in the garden is interpreted in the New Testament, we can't get away from the fact that before the fall, when there was no culture, the parents of all humanity existed as a complementary pair with these distinct relationships. If Adam is the head, what does that mean for Eve? 
How do we understand Eve? What's her distinct role? Well, we see very clearly in verse 18 and verse 20, she is a... Come on. Are you already down? Do you already want to leave? Like, I don't like this. You told me I'm not the head. I'm out of here. She's the helper. She's the helper. What does she do? She comes alongside Adam. She helps him in these tasks we've been looking at for these last two weeks. Adam is head. Eve is helper. Let's review. Let's review. As we look at the garden, as we understand before there was a fall, before there was the taint of sin, there were these complementary roles. Initiator, responder, guardian, nurturer, head, and helper. Now, let's take these and let's see how it makes marriage better. Let's look at these. Let's think through this. Here's the start of the better. Here's the start of the better. Go with me to verses 23 through 25. Go with me there. Let's look at this again because this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. Everyone wants a fairy tale marriage, right? Like who gets married saying, man, I really hope this is ho-hum. I can't wait to be average, right? Like nobody says that. We have high hopes for marriage. We want great marriages. I hope some of y'all are even holding hands, preferably with the person you're married to right now, right? Because you're feeling the sweetness, the tenderness. We want the gooeyness. Even guys, we just don't admit it, right? We want this in Adam and Eve in the garden. Guess what? For a season, they had that. Let's listen to the, verse 23. Let me shut up and just read, all right? Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen, hallelujah. Let's go back through. Let's break this down. This has goody, right? Like, this is good stuff. Look at verse 23. When Adam meets his wife, we saw this last week. We're going to dig in a little harder. He erupts into spontaneous whatever. Poetry, song, prose, it doesn't matter. The boy is inspired, right? And look at what he says about her, man. He is singing her praises. Ladies, do you like it when your husband just speaks all of the goodness that you are over you. Not just your physical beauty, but your character. All those things you do well, and not just the chocolate chip cookies, right? Oh, you love it. It's good. It's good. In verse 23, we see that when Adam first meets his wife, there's romance. There's tenderness. There's awe. There's a sense of being known. There's a sense of excitement. There's a sense of thrill. Has your spouse ever sent good corkscrews down your spinal column? That's what our boy's feeling in the garden. This is good, y'all. And it continues. Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. They're one flesh. That means there's companionship. There's unity. There's a sense of oneness. There's a very real sense in which they cannot live without the other. They are that entwined, that woven together. Verse 25, wow, yes, yes. That says what you think it says. They're vulnerable. They're without shame. This is a relationship with no hostility, no frustration, no snarkiness, no nagging. There's nothing to conceal. There's no looking down on the other. There's no dread of being discovered as a fake or a fraud. 
I've heard that sometimes husbands or wives make mistakes and they try to clean it up, hide it before the spouse gets home. That's never happened in our home, right? (laughs) There's none of that. My wife was like, what? (laughs) There's none of that in the garden. This is good. This is good. Who doesn't want a marriage like this? Isn't this this beautiful? Isn't this moving? Isn't this compelling? Right? Yes, yes, yes. There's beauty. This marriage is marked by peace, by order, by harmony. In Genesis 1, we learn that God created at the macro level. He began his reign over his creation, and it brought his peace, his harmony, his order. Well, in Genesis 2, he's doing that at the micro level. We zoom in and we see that the marriage that is to take his garden and expand it and fill the earth with more of his glory, more of his reign, more of his peace, more of his order, more of his harmony, that marriage has it. Oh, friends, do you see that? Do you see that? God's reign is perfectly present in their union. They know peace. They know order. They know harmony. Oh, man. I think we all want a marriage like this. And in fact, can I say, if we want a marriage like this, if you're here and you're not sure what to believe about Genesis 1 and 2, can I just say, you want Adam and Eve to be historical? You want them to be real human beings that really lived? Why? Because if they did it, there's hope for your marriage. There is hope for your... I mean, if they're just a myth, right? If they're just a myth, and my thingy over here gets untangled, if they're just a myth, what hope do you have? What's your alternative? What's, what's the better? Where's it going to come from? What are you going to look to? Where are you going to go? Right? Can, can, can I just say I understand? I understand if you're here, you're not a Christian. If you're here... Okay, I'm about to fire this thing. It's not a helper. All right, there we go. Can everybody hear me okay? It's on a roll, man. It's like, all right, at any rate. Here you go, here you go. I understand that you might hear those words, head, helper, initiator, responder, guardian, nurturer, and you might go, this is so stereotypical. This is so traditional. This is so old-fashioned and outdated. If you're here and that's not you, you have a neighbor, you have a friend, you have a family member who believes that. Where are you going to get your better from if Adam and Eve aren't real? Right? Like if this was a real historical marriage, you've got hope. But if not, here's what you have to turn to. Can I show you? There's a very good book. Well, I haven't finished it yet. Let me qualify it. So far, it's really good. A book called The New Eve by a man named Robert Lewis. In this book, he surveys modern culture and how we constantly, ever since the 1950s, how we constantly change and shift and alter the definition of marriage and marriage roles. He breaks it down. Let's go to the 50s. What was... was, How did marriage roles work in the 1950s, right? Woman in the home, man at work, right? And we held that very rigidly, very dogmatically. Did women feel oppressed? Yes. Did they feel like it was too hierarchical? Yes. Can we even go to the Bible and find women who do not work in the home? Yeah, Proverbs 31, Judges 4, Deborah and that lady in Proverbs 31. Absolutely. There's stuff women can do outside of the home. Well, not just within Christianity, but outside Christianity, people start to say, I don't like this patriarchal thing. I feel oppressed. This is chauvinism. And what happens in the 60s and 70s? What's the response? 
the women's lib movement, right? We still want to be married, but we want to be liberated within the marriage, right? Cue up, what's her name? Helen Reddy? I am woman. Yeah, 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 right? This is where this comes from, right? We get the idea of supermom, right? Supermom who does it all, does it in the home, does it with romance, does it at work, does it at church, does everything. But you know what these women found out? I'm exhausted. <laughs> I am tired. This does not work. There's got to be a better. So we change it. We change it again in the 80s and the 90s. What do we get? Rather than having super mom, we say, we're going to have a 50-50 marriage. We're going to have a 50-50 marriage. And this is about the time something called egalitarianism gets popular in the church. And it's a basic, it's a doctrine that says uh, men and women are fully equal in the garden. Sin ruined that. And in Jesus Christ, who undoes sin, we can get back to the equality in the garden. It doesn't work. I hope you've seen it. But here's the thing. In the church, outside of the church, we're going to have a 50-50 even Stephen marriage. What happens to ladies who have these kind of convictions? What do they discover? They start to see that when you invest in becoming a career woman, the corporation wants more. When you want to climb the ladder, when you want to get promoted, you're going to have to work more. So women are faced with a choice, home or work, right back to the dilemma of the 60s and 70s. Does the 50-50 marriage work? Ladies themselves would say this, I became what my mom despised in my dad. Why? Dad was never home. He was always working late. What did I become? Exactly that. 50-50 did not work. It does not work. No problem. We'll change it again. Final phase of, of roles, 2000s, kind of on into the present. What are we going to do? Rather than going 50-50, we're actually going to reverse the roles, right? You have lots of women going into the marketplace, men staying at home, right? What do we call them? Beta males? Is that the phrase? Something like that? There you go. There you go. Women can become breadwinners. And again, there's nothing wrong with a woman making more money than her husband. That's not bad. Do not hear what I am not saying. But the husband stays home. The husband stays home. In fact, today, 51% of the men whose wives out-earn them do the majority of domestic chores in the house. Do not hear what I am not saying. I do the dishes. When I remember, I do the laundry. I try to set little timers to do the laundry to remind myself. Why? Because my wife is an amazing woman and she needs a break. Your wife is an amazing woman. She needs a break. She needs help. Do not hear what I am not saying. A man can help around the house. He can vacuum, he can broom, he can take out trash. We can pick our clothes up off the floor, right? Every now and then, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. These men who are becoming stay-at-home dads have been interviewed. Business Week magazine just launched the following joke. Said that women are finally getting the one thing they need from their husbands, and that's a wife. Newsweek magazine surveyed these men Almost 100% of them hate their life. They don't like it. So here's our choices. The woman's unhappy, the man's unhappy. You go to modern culture, there's your alternative. Does that sound good? Do we want to change it in another 10 to 15 years? Right? Do we want to build a marriage on something that's going to shift and is going to change? No, we don't. 
Has modern culture been able to deliver the goods in your marriage and for other people's marriages? On the whole, not so much. So if you have a friend who would just buck at this and would just say, oh, this disturbs me, I don't like this, can we show him the alternative? Can we lovingly point out the truths in God's word? Can we show him verses 23, 24, and 25 and say, I've at least got something that promises and says it will deliver. Can we say that the biblical version is better? Why? Because unlike modern cultures constantly shifting marriage roles, God's roles in the Bible are timeless and universal. They cut across space. They cut across culture. They cut across society. They come across, cut across time. We can say that unlike modern culture that's based on me getting everything out of my marriage, which is essentially self-serving if you think about it, the Bible's roles call us to live sacrificially, sacrificially and servant-heartedly. What is your headship for, men? It is for making sure God's purposes in marriage are going forward in your wife's life. You've got to be fundamentally other-focused. To be an initiator, you've got to see gaps. You've got to see problems. You've got to get out in front of problems, look back and go, okay, we're headed down this road. Here's the issue. You're looking out for the family. You're not trying to be Lord. You're not trying to be the guy who says, honey, go get me a beer. That's not what it's there for. It is fundamentally other-centered. So many marriage books focus on how I can get my most out of my marriage. We said this last week, even when they say the key to a good marriage is being radically generous towards the other person, what's their rationale? Well, when they're filled up, they return the favor. It's inherently self-serving, right? There you go. Can we say that the Bible's vision and version is better because unlike modern culture that seems to pit man against woman, right, Homer Simpson against Marge Simpson, that king of the hill couple that annoys me, right, right? Instead of fighting against each other in the biblical vision of marriage, we fight for each other. We fight alongside for God's purposes. What a better. Finally, can we say this? Unlike modern culture, which has never really even been clear on the purpose of marriage, don't you want your marriage to have a sense of the transcendent, of being connected to the divine, of being connected to God? Don't you want to have a sense that you two are on a journey together, advancing his kingdom, advancing his purposes, bringing good in each other's lives, in the garden around you, and then expanding it outward? What a deeper, better purpose for marriage. You see how it's better? Oh, friends, let's live from that, and let's just try to winsomely encourage others to try on these biblical roles. Finally, finally, we can't just see that they work better. We've got to do one final thing. We've got to look at some just tips, suggestions, some practical ways we can live these out. Let me be up front and say there's a million things I could say right now. I'm going to hone in on four or five. Here are the things that, just as I learned this area, learned our church, failed myself as a husband, counseled people, premarital counseling, postmarital counseling, uh, the other side of divorce, here are just some common key themes I think we need to watch out for. First is this, in order 
to put these roles into practice, we must be deeply connected to our God. We must be deeply connected to our creator and maker. How do we do this? Please, please, read the Bible together. You do not have to be scholars. You do not have to go through 10 commentaries that are free online. Just ask the simple question. Hey, as you read this text, how do you see our Father God's heart revealed? What are you seeing? Here's what I'm seeing. What do you think this means for you? Hey, I need some help. What do you think this means for me? Build your conversations that way. Please read the word together. Connect to your Father together. And please, 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 pray together. Pray together. Every day, let's be men who ask our wives for one specific way we can pray for her. And let's commit to texting, emailing, voicemailing, phone calling, right? Like we've got the time to send a two-minute text, hey, I am praying for this. I hope you're having a great day. Let's build men as heads, as initiators, as guardians, a culture of prayer, a culture of encouragement, a culture of warmth in our marriages. Men, can we commit to that? Just go the next seven days and try it. Build a habit. It will make a difference. Number one, we must be connected to our God in prayer, in his word, and in his word. What's number two? Husbands, we're heads. We're heads. But we are heads who are under authority. We are heads who are under God's authority. We can never step outside of his protective boundaries. We can never take our families into folly and sin and lead them outside of God's boundaries. That's an abuse of headship. Our headship should not advance our purposes, but God's purposes. Our headship should reflect who our God is, this loving, gentle, kind, but firm, but strong, but giving God who gave us this amazing home in the garden, who gave us our amazing brides, who gives us our amazing sometimes children, right? Oh, friends, men, husbands, let's be the husbands that reflect our God's heart for his people to our wives. Since we are heads under authority, let me go ahead and say just something with a, it's gonna have a little bit of a poke, a little bit of a barb. Not for everybody, but maybe for some, I don't know, but I feel having watched so many women come and needing help and saying, my husband will never come and sit down with you or an elder. Can I say this? Your headship can never be used to block your wife from coming to you with an issue and then going to a pastor or elder for help or a counselor. We cannot do that. That is an abuse of our headship. That's blocking her from getting help and being a helper. That's blocking her from becoming a better nurturer. That's blocking her from, oh, friends, being a helper, being a responder. Please drop the pride and let's get some help. And can I say up front, can I say up front, please don't put Pastor Brad or the elders and I in a position where I have to go at it alone, where Pastor Brad has to go at it alone, where a district elder has to go at it alone. We need each other's help. We will respect privacy, 
We will keep things in-house. There will be a very limited circle of people who know. Pastor Brad has counseling classes and experience that I need. And yes, I've got some extra counseling courses that he needs. Please, 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 let's not play that game. And please, 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 let's drop the pride. Let's get some help. Your wife might be trying to help you by saying we need help. Just put that out there. We are under God's authority as heads. We are not God's over her. Third, husbands, we are to use our headship to lead the family towards God's purposes. I've said it a lot. We'll say it again. Our headship is not aimless. It has goals. It is there to advance God's purposes found in those three circles that we looked at last week, found in that original purpose from two weeks ago. Let's be men who take God's priorities, take our marriages, take our families, and think through them, crafting a vision, bringing our wives in, having a plan for how we're going to get at God's purposes, advancing his kingdom. Let's be men who make sure ministry, work, family, rest are held in their proper balances. Let's be men who bring our helpmates into this vision and planning process. Let's let them be responders, nurturers, and helpers. Let's be men who work to ensure that the family's time, talent, and treasure is aimed at getting the cross out there. Let's protect the family from those influences that would lead us away from God's purposes. That was three. Fourth, wives. Responding and helping means letting him lead. Yes, I said that. There are some issues that always seem to come up, whether it's young couples or old couples. Let's just get some of these things out of the way. Ladies, it is not a sin for you to make more money than your husband. But that doesn't mean he's not the head. Some of you ladies will be smarter and more competent than your husbands. That doesn't mean he's not the head. We can never take our performance and use that to undo God's word. It does not work that way, no. Please be careful. Sometimes you hear women talking about wanting to be empowered, and I understand that. I understand that. You've got to make decisions, right? There's budgets, there's grocery stores, there's bills, there's other things you need to do, and no, husbands don't want a wife calling them a thousand times a day. We've got to figure that out. But sometimes the need for empowerment is a form of control. It means, in your heart of hearts, when control, control starts to set in, you'll start to keep your husband at arm's length, You'll unintentionally at first cut them out of more and more decisions and decisions that get more and more important. You'll secretly start resenting his efforts to lead. You'll see his godliness as a nuisance and as a hindrance because you could do it better. When this sets in, you will at some point find ways to try to manipulate your husband. When you get scared or when you get anxious about following his lead, Know that you have a friend in Jesus. He understands where you're at, and he will hear your prayers for your husband. After all, he submitted himself to his father by coming to this earth and going to the cross. Jesus will not lead you into anything he cannot fix. 
Jesus will not lead you or your husband into anything he cannot fix. Can we rest in that? Can we enjoy that? Can we embrace that? Because when we do, ladies, you will actually find there is joy and delight in submitting to him as head. I have heard too many women say, I wish I had started taking on these roles sooner in life. It has been such a relief, and we want that for you. Your pastors, your elders stand ready to help. Fifth and final, wives, living out these roles does not mean you go silent. It does not mean you are a doormat. It does not mean you should follow him into sin, and it does not mean you are lesser. Not at all. None of those things are true. You are just as loved, just as saved, just as died for, just as sealed as your husband is. Jesus' blood is just as much for you. Your father's affection is just as much for you. You are equal in worth. You are equal in dignity. And yes, you are owed respect. God's headship has nothing to do with worth, just like Jesus' submission to the Father had nothing to do with his worth either. As a helper, you will need to speak up. Be kind about it. Be gracious about it. You're going to see the things he doesn't see, and he needs your help. In fact, if anything, I hope as we've looked at the purpose for marriage in Genesis 1, the three ways we can live it out last week in Genesis 2, I hope when we get to headship today, you will see it is so much deeper, so much better than just wives submit to your husbands for the sake of submitting. No, there's a kingdom purpose there. There's relationships that you reflect. There is the imago Dei, the image of God that you bear as you do these things, and those things make a powerful witness in this world. We are in such a need of a countercultural witness in ladies. As you live out your roles, men, as you live out your roles, we will advance the kingdom together. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, this can be heavy. But Father God, you are a real God. You take heavy things like sin and you put them onto your son and you zap them. Oh, Father God, as we sing right now, I pray that we would lift our voices up to you richly. Father God, I pray that we would have good conversations, whether it's on the way home, lunch while the kids are getting a nap, or, or maybe tonight after they've gone to bed, or Father, for the empty nesters, pray that they would be able to have these conversations, but no, they are wrapped in the love of Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace is there. We love you, Father. We praise you. Please give us the strength to go out and live out these complimentary roles. We ask this all in his great name.